I'm thankful to be here this morning. I, uh, I love this church very much, and I think it's no secret uh, that we uh, live in an age when uh, a lot of people uh, who profess Christ also act like the Word of God somehow is a liability. Uh, and I think it's um, by God's grace that faith is a church that is unashamedly committed to the Word, uh, all of it, uh, even passages that seem to be out of step with our culture. And I think certainly today, aspects of this passage seem to be out of step with our culture. Uh, so I want to walk through the text this morning and uh, be clear about what Paul's saying and maybe th- some things I think he's not saying. Uh, and kind of for the sake of clarity, um, at the outset, uh, if I were going to outline the text this morning, say in verse 26, he's pretty clearly saying that we all have a part in the gathered worship of the church. Verses 27 through 35, uh, he's talking about how the worship of the church should be well-ordered as a reflection of God's character. And then verses 36 through 40, uh, he is reminding us that it is his church, God's church, and not ours. Uh, So let's pray together and get to work. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being here this morning and worshiping you together. Lord, I pray that uh, our souls would be edified in our time together, that our hearts would be humbled as we submit ourselves to your word, and Lord, that uh, we would be uh, enriched by uh, the wisdom and the goodness of your plan for creation and for your church. Lord, I pray that uh, God, that in, uh, in this church, Lord, you would uh, demonstrate uh, the power of your gospel to redeem, Lord, that uh, the gifts of your spirit would be evident, and Lord, that uh, you would use our testimony together to draw those who do not yet know you towards salvation in Christ. Lord, we pray uh, that you would do all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so uh, as Paul begins in verse 26, and I guess I probably should say I'm going to uh, lean a little bit. I uh, listened uh, to your sermons from chapter 11 on, and uh, Brad did, Brad and Chuck did an excellent job, I think, kind of touching on how chapters 12 and 13 uh, develop uh, our understanding of the spiritual gifts, and I'm going to kind of lean on some of what they said, and so if you haven't heard what they said, I would encourage you to go back and listen, Uh, but for the sake of time, we're going to assume that uh, you remember that. And I think when he picks up in 26, there is definitely a shift in the text, and uh, he is reminding us absolutely that we all have a part to play. He's spent some time now developing the idea that there are different gifts in the church, uh, but the one commonality of each of these gifts, whether they're speaking gifts, whether they're gifts of service, is that uh, they are all to be done for the edification of others in love, chapter 13. So uh, I think we could talk uh, at length about verse 26, uh, thinking what a what role have I played in the gathered worship of the church? That there are no spectators in the gathered worship of the church, but that we each have a role to play according to our gifting. So if I have the gift of mercy, how have I shown mercy to God's people this morning? If I have the gift of generosity, how have I been generous this morning? Who have I taught today? And not just at some point in the past, but today, how have I contributed to the gathered worship of the church? That we each have a role to play, yet if you think about a a group of people with everyone uh, 
and discern how to use their gifts, uh, that certainly some danger in that is that uh, everybody does whatever they think they could do, and it's chaos rather than worship. And so for the rest of the passage, though we all have a role to play, uh, Paul is going to kind of lay out some guidelines for how uh, the gathered church should worship when everyone is an active participant. And specifically, I think, though uh, the, the principle applies to all gifts, specifically he's going to talk about tongues and prophecy because uh, those seem to be, or tongues seem to be sort of an issue for the Corinthian church. And so, specifically with those two gifts, tongues and prophecy, uh, how uh, does the gathered worship of the church when everyone is playing a part still demonstrate order? And so he uh, begins uh, with tongues. And he's basically, verse 27, going to give us three rules for the use of tongues in the church. Uh, if anyone speaks in a tongue, uh, let there at most be two or three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. So those are our three rules. At most, there should be two or three tongue speakers uh, exercising their gift in the gathered worship of the church, that uh, though there may be two or three, the tongue should be spoken one at a time. There shouldn't be uh, people in the congregation simultaneously tongue-speaking, and then someone must always interpret. And as he, he uh, develops this, it seems like he's probably thinking, oh, one speaks and then someone interprets it, then another speaks, then it's interpreted, then another speaks and it's interpreted. And uh, then uh, adds in verse 28, that if there is no one to interpret, then the tongue speakers should stay silent. That they should use their uh, ability to speak in tongues really as a private prayer language. It's between them and God. In the gathered worship of the church, uh, though tongues certainly have a role to play, that tongues ultimately are governed by these rules. And I, I think uh, in... In passing, uh, the de definition that Brad developed for tongues uh, is a great one. And I think uh, that we have to understand that uh, these directions are given to uh, tongue speakers in a time when the church did not have this treasure, right? That they were relying on supernatural means for uh, their understanding of the gospel to be more fully developed, and that while uh, tongues certainly had uh, a necessary part in the development of the first century church, that uh, ultimately, with both tongues and prophecy, uh, were depending on the integrity of the person who is speaking in tongues or the person who is prophesying. And uh, ultimately, uh, when we can, uh, when I can say, or Troy can say, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14, that what we have here is a superior form of revelation where we don't have to uh, depend on uh, the integrity of the person revealing something, where we can simply open uh, the, our Bibles to the passage and read it each for ourselves, that this is a superior form of revelation. But, but, I think uh, as much as this is a superior form of revelation. Uh, our confidence in the Word uh, should not ever uh, produce in us a suspicion of the movement of the Spirit. I sat in the back 
this morning, uh, partially because I wanted to see uh, if you were all like Country Bible, like if there was a little bit of this during the worship, and then like curious side glances, uh, and what's, what's going on. Uh, I was happy to see some hands raised and some clapping, uh, right? But I think... Uh, I'll just say it. Uh, there are uh, certainly churches that uh, em- claim to employ tongues and uh, certainly not according to the rules that Paul is very clearly stipulating here. Uh, and at the same time, uh, I think that there, and, and uh, at least to my knowledge, Faith is not a church where uh, people are speaking in tongues simultaneously uh, and without interpretation. However, I, like there's probably a ditch on both sides of this road that while I'm not so concerned about you being a church where uh, the gifts run amok, as Brad said, at the same time, I think we have to be careful not to be a church that is suspicious of the movement of the Spirit of God. He goes on in verse 29, turning his attention to the prophets. And I think, uh, I think it's important to note, really, to understand the overall structure of the passage. The similarity between his, what he says are rules governing the use of tongues and the way he develops the rules for the use of prophecy in the church. And so, as with tongues, he starts out that it is done... Uh, that there are uh, rules for prophecy and in the gathered worship of the church and that it is done only two or three at a time. Two or three speak and then the others weigh what is said. And it, it could be with the way he's saying this, that he's saying two or three prophets can prophesy and then everybody else weighs what the prophet's saying rather than one interpret, one interpret, one interpret. Uh, yet, as with tongues, uh, it's done one at a time. Uh, and then, kind of as a, a parenthetical statement where there isn't really an equivalent in his addressing on the tongues, he, he adds, uh, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So, essentially, I think he's saying, no hogging the microphone. Uh, if God reveals something to someone else uh, while you're prophesying and they, you know, they gonna raise their hand or give you the nod, uh, then you need to sit down and let them speak. Don't ever assume that what you have to say to the gathered church is more important than what someone else has to say uh, to the gathered church. That uh, each has a role to play and uh, that... Prophesying, verse 31, should happen one by one uh, so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And then he goes on to add that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, right? So if uh, anyone's tempted to say, like, look, I, Paul, I can't. I, you know, the Spirit of God came upon me. I just stood up and I just started doing what the Spirit of God compelled me to do. I, I can't control it. Uh, Paul is saying, no, absolutely it does not work like that. Uh, that uh, a prophet is never out of control of his own tongue. Your spirit is in your power, right? That's not the way that prophecy works, that God is in control of God inspires a person to prophesy, but a person is always in control of themselves. And uh, then he goes on to explain that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Right? That if everyone were speaking in tongues or everyone were prophesying simultaneously, chaos ensues, and that chaos would not be a reflection of of God's character. God is a God of order and peace, and so when the gifts of uh, tongues or prophecy 
are seen in the church, that they should be used in such a way that reflects God's own character. And then, uh, you know, that was probably the part of the text that stood out to you as countercultural. The rest is easy. Uh (laughs) And then, I like the ESV, but I think maybe there's an unfortunate paragraph break here. Uh, That I I think what, what he's going to say in verses 34 and 35 are very much a part of the prophecy conversation. Uh, and I guess as an aside, uh, before we get into it, I think there are a lot of reasons. <laughs> There's a very long list of reasons. I, I read them all this week, I think, where why people say verses 34 and 35 are uh, irrelevant today. And I'm not sure that uh, there is there are many people who aren't a little bit uncomfortable with what verses 34 and 35, seem to be saying. Uh, But to understand what's being said in verses 34 and 35, uh, I think probably need to step back for a second and remind ourselves of the broader context, right? Uh, I I started in chapter 11 because I think the way you understand verses 34 and 35 very much depends on what you understood uh, Paul to be saying in chapter 11, where he goes to great length uh, to talk about how women can appropriately pray or prophesy in the gathered worship of the church. So, uh, really, we have to ask ourselves a question uh, before we get into verse 34 and 35. I mean, options in front of us potentially are Paul Uh, spent a half a chapter describing how women could speak publicly in the gathered worship of the church, and then three chapters later forgot that he did that and just decided, you know what, just no women speaking in the church. Sure, that that's possible. I don't. I don't think my understanding of the inerrancy of the word allows me. Like, well, you know, Paul suffers from short-term memory loss. Uh, he he didn't forget what he'd said by the time he got to chapter fourteen. Uh, it. I don't think that this can be understood as an absolute prohibition against women speaking in the church. That uh, he expects, he doesn't just allow for, but expects women to be active participants in the gathered worship of the church, including in speaking roles, right? Uh, That was pretty clearly established in chapter 11. So now, if you come back to the immediate context of chapter 14, I think you'll note that, well, this one uh, specifically line, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church, really strikes us as uh, odd. I think if we look at the immediate context, you'll note that uh, this isn't the first time that there has been a command to silence, even since verse 26, right? That uh, Paul says uh, in verse 28, Uh, that any tongue speaker, male or female, that doesn't have an interpreter needs to be silent. And then in verse 30, any prophet, male or female, uh, who doesn't know when to sit down needs to learn when to be silent. That verses 34 and 35 are, are the third command to silence just in our text this morning. And even more importantly, I think, if you look at the rules that are developed for tongue speaking, all right, two or three at most, one at a time, and they must be interpreted. Uh, and then you look at the rules that are developed for prophecy, uh, again, two or three, one at a time. And then when you would expect Paul to then talk about how the prophecy should be weighed or in- interpreted, so to speak, uh, Instead, this command to uh, silence, uh, specifically 
the command for women to be silent. And I think uh, what we should understand Paul to be saying is that uh, his command for the silence of women is specifically in the context of weighing prophecy. This isn't an absolute ban on women speaking in church. It's a, a command for silence in weighing prophecy. Uh, similar to the way uh, that he uh, tells women to refrain from teaching or exercising authority over men in 1 Timothy 2. Right? That women absolutely, Paul expects, have a role in uh, revealing truth to the congregation, right? Prophesying, praying, our equivalent today would be reading scripture uh, in the church, uh, right? But that when it comes to teaching scripture uh, or weighing prophecy, he asks the women to remain silent. And uh, in 1 Timothy 2, he ties that command back to the created order, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, when he's talking about uh, gender roles in the church, he ties that command back to the order of creation. And here, uh, interestingly, he ties it to the law. Uh, I think that's important uh, at least for two reasons. Uh, number one, uh, this isn't a cultural accommodation. You know, Paul's not uh, looking at... Uh, chauvinistic Roman culture and saying, well, you know, that's not the way the church should be, uh, but, you know, because the Romans are the way that they are, let's not have women weighing prophecy, right? That this is being tied back to the way things have been since the beginning. And uh, number two, uh, in, especially in the sense of 1 Timothy 2, though also in 1 Corinthians 11, that he's not tying it back to Genesis 3. That there are a lot of people who would say that the reason this text is irrelevant today is because uh, Genesis 3, the result of the fall and woman desiring to rule over man. But never once uh, does Paul ever give us any indication that uh, gender roles in the church are a result of the fall, right? That Satan's attempting to uh, subvert gender roles, uh, to, to uh, destroy what God intended for gender, very much is a result of the fall. Uh, but gender roles existed prior to the fall. Uh, now, on what Paul has in mind specifically here in 1 Corinthians 14 when he says the law uh, is a little less clear uh, because there is no Mosaic law that specifically talks about the role of women in the gathered worship of the church. I think probably he means one of two things. Number one, he could be referring to uh, Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron and Moses. Uh, and uh, specifically, I think... It's interesting that he alluded to Numbers 12 uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He, he, uh, the face-to-face -face progression of 1 Corinthians 13 very much mirrors the mouth-to-mouth -mouth, uh, of Numbers 12. Uh, but he could also have in mind the law just as a general term for the, the Pentateuch. Uh, he could be thinking again about the created order. Whichever one he has in mind, I think... It's important that we understand that this is not a cultural accommodation. This isn't something that we can skirt around uh, as if it doesn't matter today. Uh, that this is very much God's intention for the church, whether or not we entirely understand why God would intend what he intends. And I think he goes so far, I, I think, verse 35, he says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. 
or it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And I think what he's saying there, uh, I've been married for a little while. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, not that this has ever happened in my house, but uh, you know, once in a while, uh, a wife, not my wife, could very helpfully not criticize, but ask questions that are, one could think were criticism. Uh, And in verse 35, I think, uh, you know, if, uh, well, I'm not evaluating prophecy. I was simply asking questions about what they mean. Uh, Paul uh, wants uh, the gender roles that he's assigning here to be so clear, right, that, like, we don't even want, like, well, I was just asking questions, right, that uh, don't, don't even ask clarifying questions, that, uh, that if you have something that you want to learn, ask at home, right, that when it comes to uh, interpreting God's word or in weighing prophecy, that in the gathered worship of the church, when we're all together, that this is something Paul expects uh, men to be doing. Right? And, and there are a lot of things I could say at this point uh, about gender roles. I think Brad's uh, sermon on 1 Corinthians 11 was uh, very good. Go back and listen to it. But trusting that you've talked about this recently, uh, I'll simply add, uh, again, that there is, I think, no textual reason at all to think in any way that what Paul is saying, that somehow women lack biblical understanding or somehow Uh, women by nature lack sound theological judgment, or even that women lack the gift to teach. In fact, I am relatively confident that there are at least a few women in the room today that could do a better job preaching this passage than I could. That that's irrelevant. That, That he's not saying in any way that men are better than women. What uh, Paul is attempting to do, and uh, I think does, uh, is establish overall, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, this idea that men and women are co-equal image bearers of God, yet in the church, uh, loving submission one to another reflects the Son's loving submission to the Father. In the same way that tongues and prophecy ought to be exercised in a way that demonstrates something about God's character, our relationship one to another in the church ought to demonstrate something else about God's character, a a specific type of order where one person who is co-equal with another person, voluntarily and lovingly submits, uh, not because superiority has anything to do with it, but simply as an act of love, that the Son and the Father are absolutely co-equal in divine essence. The Son's submission to the Father has nothing to do with the superiority of the Father to the Son. They are co-equally God, right? And this isn't simply reflected in gender roles in the church. I think it's also reflected very much in commands that uh, you as a congregation are given to submit to your elders. That that doesn't mean that the elders are better than you or more Christian than you. Uh, That your submission to your elders reflects the same relationship, that voluntary loving submission reflects something about God's own 
nature. In the course of this passage, Paul is definitely developing the argument, I think, that uh, our submission ought to be orderly because God is a God of order. And in 34 and 35, I think he's saying uh, that our submission one to another also reflects God's character, uh, though to us... uh, I think it, it's important to note that everything he's saying, from 27 up to uh, 33, isn't probably really all that countercultural. I mean, uh, unless you grew up in a church or spent time in a church that's very different than Faith Bible in some ways, like you are probably very used to orderly worship the way Paul is describing orderly worship. Whatever church you're in, I think... 34 and 35 uh, definitely sound or are countercultural. And I think whether or not uh, it seems countercultural to us shouldn't have any bearing on whether or not we decide we're going to submit to it. In fact, I think it's been very helpful for me in uh, thinking about what the Bible says about uh, gender roles uh, and, and it's been helpful for me to realize, I think, that, that the Bible has, in terms of gender roles, almost always been countercultural, right? That uh, if Paul were here this morning, he wouldn't be surprised uh, by what he said here being out of step with the culture. I think uh, while what he's saying here might not have been too out of step with Roman culture, things that he says elsewhere in the New Testament absolutely would have been countercultural in the New Testament time. Right? Like in the first century, saying men and women are co-equally image bearers of God, the idea that men are in any way superior to women is straight from the pit of hell. Romans would have scoffed at that. That was countercultural teaching. That Paul's never, <laughs> never seems to be a person all that concerned with what is or what isn't culturally palpable, he always seems concerned with what is true. And as the pendulum is swung, uh, our nation now, uh, very much unlike the first century, is saying not that men are superior to women, but that there is no difference between men and women. Uh, in fact, I, at this point, uh, I, probably the cultural consensus or near consensus uh, is that male and female are simply social constructs. They're not even real. Uh, and, you know, not all of us would agree with that, but that is definitely the way that our culturalism, culture is moving. And so I guess my point is, or what has helped me is to understand that the way the Bible articulates a view of gender has always been countercultural and probably always will be countercultural, right? That whether the Bible is insisting that men and women are co-equally image bearers of God while society is screaming, no, they're not, or the church is saying that men and women are co-equally image bearers of God, but there are very real differences between male and female, and the church has to treasure the integrity of each as a gift from God, and the culture is screaming, no, there is no difference between the two at all. Like We're always out of step with the culture. And for what it's worth, I think uh, that those who are faithful to Scripture should simply accept the fact that attacks from the enemy are going to come from every quarter, from all sides. That accord with our culture, peace with our culture, peace with any culture for that matter, uh, isn't an aim of Scripture, and we shouldn't strip away parts of Scripture to try to find accord with our culture. That Scripture never attests to every culture 
or any culture uh, existing without being marred by sin. That all cultures are in some way or another marred by sin. And if Scripture isn't marred by sin, then we're never going to find a culture uh, on this side of heaven that perfectly harmonizes with the Word of God. And I think if we do think that we've found such a culture, we either don't really understand the culture or we don't really understand the Bible. Uh, if we are going to be faithful to the Word, we should give up any expectation of being entirely at peace with the culture. There are always going to be things that we believe that are countercultural. And if it's not this, it's going to be something else. <clears throat> but Paul goes on, verse 36, with a couple quick rhetoricals. Uh, and basically, I think he's, he's reminding us that this isn't really ultimately up to us or to accept or reject in our wisdom. Uh, they're not so subtle reminders, I think, about Paul's apostleship like a reminder of his authority as apostle, right? Who, who brought the gospel to you in the first place? And uh, aren't there other churches to whom you could compare yourself? <clears throat> Verse 37, uh, Paul says, I think very directly, that anyone who rejects what he's saying here is demonstrating, clearly demonstrating to you that they aren't a prophet or they're not even spiritual, what he's saying is absolutely a command from the Lord. And in fact, verse 38, <clears throat> he says, anyone who does not recognize this, he is not recognized. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that phrase, he is not recognized, is passive and indicative. So he's, what he's saying uh, is not, it, it sounds to me like in English on the first read, uh, that he's saying, if somebody doesn't recognize the truth of what I'm saying, then you all shouldn't recognize him. Like, I don't recognize him, you shouldn't recognize him. But that's not what he's saying. <clears throat> he's saying uh, that God does not recognize the person who refuses to recognize what he's, uh, the truth of what he's saying. That if anyone doesn't recognize his authority of an apostle in this Corinthian conversation, that God is not going to recognize them which is a hard saying, but Paul is firm here. And so, in verse 39, he kind of summarizes the whole argument by reminding them, uh, brothers, right? And so now, a term of endearment after the warning, a term of endearment, uh, and charging them, earnestly desire to prophesy or much as Brad was saying, all the way up to this point in chapter 14, that prophecy uh, is uh, in some sense superior to tongues in terms of the edification of believers. So again, charging them, pursue the gift that most edifies the people around you, yet do not forsake or forbid the speaking in tongues. So don't <clears throat> diminish any gift, don't deny any gift of the Spirit, receive all that God gives, but if your heart is to lovingly build up the people around you, seek to prophesy. However, whether you're prophesying or speaking in tongues, everything has to be done in order. Uh, relationships that reflect the character of God. And Uh, we are we're people who turn everything upside down. Like, if you notice that, like, uh, we tend to think about things kind of backwards. And I think uh, at times, uh, whether we were uh, whether we were We live in a world where everybody thinks, seems to think that somehow the Bible should be held to our standards, like our cultural standard. That, 
catch ourselves thinking that our idea of what God is like is uh, somehow more significant than how he self-discloses in Scripture. That that, uh, we can somehow check uh, the God of the Bible against what we want God to be like, and what's more important ultimately is what we want God to be like. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we act as though uh, we get to decide what the church is or what the church should be doing, and uh, almost as if God doesn't have a design for the church. I think probably uh, we have all caught ourselves at some point or another acting like our pleasure in God's worship is more important than God's pleasure in our worship. Uh, I walked out of church singing, I really liked uh, the songs that Troy picked today. Or I didn't really care for that music. Or, uh, you know, the sermon wasn't all that appealing to me today. Uh, which, hey, you can say that, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, <clears throat> I think we're people that almost all, like just by impulse, turn everything upside down. Uh, And I catch myself doing it all the time. Like, how can I have that kind of gall? Like, uh, that God so clearly spells out what he intends. And I'm like, well, okay, sure, but. And act as if my opinion is more important than God's. I I think if Faith Bible were a church uh, that was out of step with what the Word says with respect to the use of gifts, I think I would probably preach a different sermon uh, or say something different at this point. If Faith Bible... Uh, were a church that I thought was wildly out of step with Scripture's expectations regarding uh, gender roles. Uh, I'd probably say something different at this point. But you being who you are, I think uh, probably uh, like me, uh, there's one thing really, that I think uh, you'll walk away from this passage really thinking about. And it's that, that when we read something in the Word and, our, and like kind of instinctually pull back, like that is absolutely telling us something about our heart. You know, whether or not we're consciously deciding I'm going to act against the word of God, even that just momentary impulse to like, "Mm, that doesn't seem right to me. It's the word of God. Whatever our guts tell us, our culture never rests above God's word in terms of authority. It is subject to God's word. That God is not who we imagine him to be, he is who he reveals himself to be in Scripture. That we are not free to assign a purpose to the church. That whoever ultimately uh, you hire to preach week in, week out, doesn't decide what the church is going to be. The church is, the church's mission is, what God intends the church to be and do. That our worship of the Lord is not for our pleasure. It's for His. And by His grace, He gives us unimaginable joy in His worship, but our worship is not for our pleasure. It's for His. 
I said at the beginning that I'm, I'm thankful uh, the church, the, that faith is firm in its commitment to the Word, commitment to ordered worship, uh, commitment to clarity on God's design for gender. I think the church's commitments are clearly biblical. And at the same time, I think we serve a very crafty foe. And in my own heart, and I suspect maybe uh, in yours, we shouldn't give ourselves an easy pass on this text. Like, oh yeah, yeah we, we're not perfect, but we do this well. I think I grew up in a church very much like faith. Uh, I, I'm at home in a church very much like faith. Uh, it's comfortable. And if you're like me, uh, I think there is uh, something to be glad about when you're comfortable in something that is biblical. But at the same time, I think it's a little bit dangerous uh, because our desire for our own comfort can kind of wrap itself in a biblical justification. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, uh, am, is our expectation of what church is like, uh, does it have more to do with what we're used to or more to do with biblical conviction? Uh, you know, uh, I I don't clap during worship uh, because I can't keep rhythm. If like if I try to start clapping, either the clapping is going to be out of rhythm and it's going to be distracting for everybody else, or like I can't really sing. I don't, I don't know. The Lord just didn't make me musical. Uh, and you know I. I don't have any problem with people clapping. In fact, it makes me happy. I'm glad that God made people that can keep time. Uh, obviously, I can't. Uh, <laughs> but I think uh, you know when when we uh, worship around people who maybe worship a little bit differently than we do. Our discomfort with their worship demonstrates to us you know, that uh, what's driving us is more a desire for personal comfort than a drive for biblical fidelity. Uh, and I can't let uh, my comfort in some ways very much mirror the kind of order that Paul is advocating for here. Uh, be the thing that drives me. Always, always, I need to be driven by biblical conviction. I need to be putting to death my desire for comfort, and I need to be seeking to magnify Christ in everything. Appreciating that Paul has given, a, or God has given a diversity of gifts, and Paul is explaining how that diversity of gifts is ultimately unified in Christ to build a body that works together for its own edification. That uh, very much God wants our worship to reflect his character. And, you know, the Corinthian church maybe uh, wasn't fully displaying the character of God in the gifts run amok in the disorder and the chaos. But I can't help but wondering if Paul were writing to us, uh, if he would have focused not so much on a different point, but on different attributes. Right? Our, our worship generally may be uh, ordered, it may be peaceful, but is it self-sacrificially loving? Is it merciful? 
Is it gracious? How true is it that we absolutely have to be pursuing worship that reflects God's character, but not just in terms of order? In every way, our worship should be reflecting God's character, and that there's never a sense in which we're finished in that pursuit, that we can always, as a church, more faithfully reflect God's character. And so, faith, my charge to you is to press on. Press on. Continue increasingly to adorn the gospel in the way you worship the Lord together. Faithfully demonstrate his character in every way in your worship together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. Lord, we pray that you would uh, forgive us uh, of hearts that rest in judgment uh, over your word. And God, we pray that you would give us hearts that would sit in submission to your word. God, the honesty to reflect uh, on the ways in which our life together uh, reflects your character and ways in which it doesn't. And God, give us the faithfulness, the strength to pursue the sort of worship that more perfectly reflects who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. God, use uh, the life of this church and to strengthen our belief or to whet our appetite for the hope of heaven and to draw lost sinners to yourself. Do this for your glory and for the building of Christ's church. In his name we pray. Amen.